This is 15-Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15-Minute History is a partnership of Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, in the Center for Middle Eastern Studies. I'm honored to have as my guest in the studio today, Leonard Greenspoon, who is Klutznik Chair and Jewish Civilization Professor of Classical Near Eastern Languages and Theology at Creighton University. Welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You gave a, a talk titled, How and Why Jews Translate the Bible and How and Why It Matters. Uh, and my first question is more of a technical one, which has to do with translating religious texts. Uh, my own background is Islamic studies. And for example, the Quran is only the Quran when it's in the Arabic language. If you take it out of Arabic and translate it into any other language, it's an interpretation or a rendition, but it's not the actual Quran anymore. When you're talking about translation of Jewish texts, does it have a similar meaning? Is it is it that rigid, or can it be, quote-unquote, translated? It's an excellent question, and we might go back, for example, to the, the Greek term hermeneo, which is means to translate, and it means to interpret, so that translation in and of itself is interpretation. It's especially the case when, for example, we go from ancient Hebrew to modern English, because we've got several thousand years of time that separate the two cultures and the languages are different in that English is Indo-European and Hebrew is, is Semitic. The question about the status of translations in, in Judaism is an interesting one because for the most part, the translations are intended to complement or accompany the original, but not to take their place. On the other hand, there have been some Jewish translations that were intended to be essentially the Bible in Arabic or in German or in Greek. Um, what I can say is that, as far as I know, there's no synagogue, no matter how reformed, how modern, how non-traditional, that has the scrolls. You know, every synagogue has at least one scroll that contains the Torah or the five books of Moses. So far as I know, every synagogue everywhere in the world has that in Hebrew. And when it's taken out and read, it's read in Hebrew. So there's an expectation that at least the religious and often the uh, lay leadership of a synagogue and some of its members will be conversant and familiar with the Hebrew and be able to read it, sometimes essentially at sight. But it's not expected even in a traditional synagogue, that everyone will understand the Hebrew. And consequently, every synagogue, including ultra-Orthodox synagogues, will have a translation uh, and will make some use of it. So in general, um, I would say that uh, in Judaism, it's not exactly, it must be in the original in order to be the sacred text. On the other hand, we might say that Judaism occupies a midpoint between Islam and Christianity, especially Protestantism. Uh, essentially for Protestants, I think it's fair to say today, the Bible is whatever translation you happen to have. And there's very little awareness uh, among Protestants, and I think probably among most Catholics, that what we're dealing with is a translation. The only analog, if you will, or the only parallel to the insistence on thumb-knowledge Judaism within the Jewish community is among some Greek Orthodox, where 
uh, children go to a Greek school, as in Judaism, you would go to a Sunday or Hebrew school. And the language is still something that is part of the service and part of the liturgy. So uh, again, Judaism occupies a mid-ground between Protestantism, especially, and Islam. Given that there is this relative importance of the original Hebrew text, how does one then take on the responsibility of translating this text into another language? It strikes me as quite different than, for example, translating casual correspondence. I mean, there there has to be some thought put into how exactly to render the text. You're absolutely correct. This would be true, presumably, of any religious group that's translating a seminal text. In Judaism, there has not been an insistence on translating the text literally. In fact, the literal sense of the text is not an important feature in Judaism, just as, by the way, it's not important in Roman Catholicism. The text can be translated in what we would say as a fairly formal translation type, which is more literal. And when we use today, we tend to use terms formal and functional equivalence. In a formal equivalence translation, the idea is that the meaning of the text is inextricably bound up with a form. Now, the form of biblical Hebrew is very different from the form of modern English. Therefore, if a text, a biblical text is translated in the formal sense, it will sound foreign to today's reader. Now, in and of itself, that's not a bad thing. After all, it is an ancient text. It is a foreign text. Another view is that when you do a translation, you should ask the question, what did the original author intend to say to his audience? How do we say the same thing? This is called functional equivalence. It's especially popular among Protestants and among those for whom preaching the word of God, often to people to whom English is a second language, to whom this is important. In a uh, functional equivalence, you're less concerned about the form And the philosophy, if you will, behind it is that what really matters is replicating its meaning and that replicating the meaning is separate from the form. Many Jewish translations have been formal equivalents, more little. Others have been functional equivalents. And that does not seem to be a dominating factor. Uh, For Jews, first and foremost, the translation of the Bible is the translation of the Hebrew Bible, which in contents is the same as the Protestant Old Testament, but it has a different order. And my preferred kind of translation, the Hebrew appears on one page, and then facing it is the English or German or other uh, modern language into which it's being translated. Because this reminds us that the translation should be seen not as a replacement, but as an accompaniment to it. Now, many translations come out in a variety of formats. Having Hebrew on one side and English, let us say, on the other side is expensive, and it's not always possible if you're trying to make a low-cost edition of a particular translation. The title page will often have Hebrew on it. The names of the biblical books will often appear in Hebrew. The five books of Moses, or the Torah, is read in a yearly cycle, and this, this will often be marked in a translation which is intended for a Jewish audience. And depending on the edition, Bibles typically have what we now call paratexts, which is to say introductions to the volume, introductions to various books, and a variety of notes, which could be exegetical, lexicographical, 
information can be put into a note. And a Jewish translation will always give greater attention to the Jewish exegetical tradition. And a Jewish translation will exclude any kind of translation with interpretation that has been associated with Christians. So, for example, the very beginning of Genesis, uh, which can be translated, when God began to create, or in the beginning God created, there's an expression, Ruach Elohim. Elohim is the word God, and Ruach is a word that can mean breath, it can be wind, or it can be spirit. In many conservative Christian translations, the word spirit appears with a capital S. Now, it's important to know that Hebrew doesn't have capital and small letters. Right. Any word which is capitalized, generally because it's a proper name, is a decision by the translators. The same is true in effect in the Greek, because the Greek manuscripts are written with all capital letters or all small letters. The decision to capitalize the S in the word spirit, if that's the translation you use, is intended to equate the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 with the Holy Spirit. This is a Christological interpretation. Within a Christological context, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but it's one of many features that you would not find in a Jewish translation. You've made some interesting points regarding the differences between the way a Jewish translation of the Bible might read and a Christian interpretation might read. Are these the kinds of things that make the study of Jewish-specific translations of the Bible important uh, when we're looking at the overall trajectory of biblical scholarship? Um, Probably not. Uh, That is to say, comparisons between Christian and Jewish translations has its place. But what I'm most interested in is the the cultural, the social, the historical and political context in which Jewish translators worked and how that affected the translations they did. For example, throughout uh, Europe, up until the middle of the 18th century, Jews were disenfranchised minorities. They were often congregated into particular places where they could live. They were not able to have jobs, own businesses, they lived a very constricted life, yet they produced amazing texts, and the translations of the Bible are just a small portion of those amazing texts. But how did a translator operate? What was he trying to do? Uh, I say he here because, so far as we know, all of the translations by Jews, for Jews, have been produced uh, by males, sometimes individuals, uh, sometimes committees. One of the contrasts that I mentioned before would be important. Is the translator trying to imbue the language into which he's translating the Hebrew? Is he trying to imbue that translated text with a lot of Hebraisms, with a lot of Semiticisms, with a lot of words and expressions and forms that reflect the original Hebrew? Uh, That, for example, is what was done in much of the first translation, which is the Septuagint, from the Hebrew into the Greek, done by Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, beginning 280 years before the birth of Jesus. We're now looking at that translation as a means by which the Jewish community, and most translations are representative of a community with community support, how that community uh, who moved into Alexandria, Egypt shortly after it was founded by Alexander the Great, and Alexandria became the first or second city of the Hellenistic world, at some point surpassing Rome and certainly surpassing Athens. So the Jews were moving into a new culture and movement from Judea, 
Palestine to Egypt. That's a geographical movement. Moving from uh, Hebrew or Aramaic into Greek, that's a linguistic movement. But even more, there's a cultural movement. And so what were the Jews to do? This is a question that was asked in the 20th century as two and a half million Jews moved from Eastern Europe to the United States. Should they segregate themselves and continue with their practices, not bothering to become part of the general community, learning the languages and culture of the general community, or should they try to acculturate? If they acculturate, will they lose it all? Because in Alexandria, Egypt, there may have been 500,000 Jews, but there were 7 million other people, Jewish minority. And the Greek translators appear this is a, a newer idea in uh, translation studies of Jewish translations. They appear to have adopted what's called sort of a cultural resistance. They put their translation into Greek because that was indeed the language that people were speaking. But they imbued it, they kept enough of the Hebrew so that it would not sound like everyday Greek. It would sound foreign to a Greek speaker. And that foreignness could be seen as awkward because if you read the the Greek text, it's awkward Greek. But their putting it into their translation was a way of resisting full Hellenization, if you will, fully becoming Greek, because the translation, while in Greek, had a lot of features that it kept from the Hebrew. This is an, a major issue, uh, the major issue of acculturation. What happens when a minority of Jews live in or especially move into an area that is majority something else, which has happened everywhere except in modern Israel. So this is a window into that issue. What about the role of men and women? Throughout much of the history of Bible translation, especially into Yiddish and then into German, the translations were on the title page, it would say, for women or for the classroom, women and children. What were they saying? That was sort of a facade or fiction that every Jewish man would know the text in Hebrew. He wouldn't need a translation. It was only for children and women. Now, the children who were female would always need it. The children who were male would grow up and then they become Hebrew-knowing males. But that, that was only a fiction. So, you know, the translation itself, you know, what was this intended audience? And then uh, within Judaism, there were different strands of belief. Now, the view, which is pretty much universal among Jews now is what we call rabbinic. We follow the, the rabbinic principles that were laid out by the rabbis of the Talmud in the 3rd to, to 6th century. But not all Jews were rabbinic. And so there was a famous translator whose name was Saja Gaon in the 10th century. The Gaon is, is a, a, a name of like teacher. And he did a translation into Arabic. And one of his goals was to combat other groups of Jews, these Jews were called Karaites, who didn't follow the rabbis. So he put into his translation, wasn't interested in having a literal translation, he put into his translation the rabbinic interpretation. And a classic example is that three times in the Hebrew Bible, the text reads, you shall not boil a kid in his mother's milk. What does that mean? You shouldn't boil a kid in his mother's milk. Does it go back to some pagan practice that was being um, uh, shunned? Or nobody actually knows. The rabbis understood that to mean you don't eat milk and meat together. You don't prepare milk and meat together. You don't use the same utensils in preparing or in eating, what have you. So in his translation, when Saja came across the passage, do not boil a kid in his mother's milk, he put in his Arabic text, don't prepare milk and meat products together. Is that what the text says? Well, 
not by any literal meaning of it, but this interpretive element of which you spoke before became dominant. And then we follow it through to uh, modern translations. There's a a widely um, known modern translation for Orthodox Jews that uses the interpretation of certain classic rabbinic exegetes or interpreters, and they put that in the text. And the literal text is not there. Again, Jews are really not literalists. Literal textual study is pretty much of a Protestant uh, fixation. Um, It's not something Catholics or Jews have highlighted. But it is interesting that you could go from a do not boil a kid in his mother's milk and put in the text, instead of that, don't prepare milk and meat products together. You get that through the interpretive element. And this is all very interesting. And then there's some other areas that people don't often think of, but if you think of a Bible translation as a major project, which takes a lot of resources, human resources, financial resources, got to be, the translators have to be taken care of, the text has got to be transcribed or printed, it's got to be produced, it's got to be sold. These are generally beyond, certainly today, and certainly it was true in antiquity in many places as well, something that can't be done by one individual. It has to be done by a corporate group, whether it's a religious group or it's a philanthropic group or it's a money-making group. And who pays for the translation is not an inconsequential matter. If you look at Bible translations today, now they pretty much have, this is who, who prepared it. And some Protestant translations, right at the beginning, it says only people who believe in the inerrancy of the biblical text, only people who believe in the literal understanding of the text can be translators. That's not a Jewish way of doing things, uh, but that is the way in which some uh, Protestants would do. And then the organization that supports it uh, would be given, and you, you could make some identification. So um, there's any number of aspects of Bible translation where the Jewish translation is part of a rich heritage within Judaism. It also allows us to see examples which frankly haven't been looked at as much as they should, of general concepts and general practices in Bible translation. So I used to say if you went to a, a, a bookstore, a big bookstore, but we have very few big bookstores left, but if you went to a big bookstore and went to the Bible section, you'd be amazed at how many Bibles there are. Often they're the very same Bible, repackaged, 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 repackaged. At least the last time I looked, which is now at least maybe it could even be a decade ago, Jewish Bible translations were not in the Bible section, but in the Jewish studies section. Somebody made a judgment, oh, no, they don't belong over here. This is where Christian Bibles are. And there are all sorts of issues like that uh, that I think have been understudied and therefore undervalued. Well, you have given us a lot to think about with what seems like a, a relatively straightforward concept of translation. I'd like to thank you so much for being with us in the studio today. Thank you. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, alignments to the Texas and National Standards for Social Studies, and links to more information on this topic, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's 15minutehistory.org. And for even more, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. The University of Texas is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in this or any episode of 15-Minute History do not reflect the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its constituent colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.